Hello, my name is James McDermott. I'm a writer, teacher and 26-year-old cisgendered man. As a gay man, I love men, but as a gay man, I dislike men too. As a camp man who talks and writes about his feelings, I have always questioned stereotypical masculine ideals. As stereotypical men aren't camp, don't talk about their feelings and certainly don't create plays and poems about them. As a 26-year-old, I feel I've learned and unlearned lots about being a man, but at 26, still have lots to learn and unlearn about being my own kind of man. In this podcast series, I will talk with several people to explore masculinity, try and work out why we love and hate men, whether there are such things as masculine ideals, how creativity can help men explore and express themselves, and what men still have to learn and unlearn about being their own kind of man. In this episode, I'm joined by Ben Richardson. So first and foremost, can I ask you to say a little bit about yourself and your work and what made you want to come along and talk to us this afternoon? Uh, so my name's Ben. I am um, a bookshop manager in Norwich. I'm uh, 47 years old, have to keep count these days. I'm really just interested in um, the the, uh, the power of positive masculinity as a sort of a, a social idea, really. Do you think books and literature have responded to that at all? As you say, I work as a writer and you work as a bookseller. Do you think literature has stepped up to that challenge of uh, representing positive masculinity? I think the fiction that has come out is probably a bit too, um, I don't know, literary for, for, what I'm, for what I'm talking about, really. For it to get down to the grassroots, I think it probably could um, do with... Uh, coming into the mass market. I think there's books like Robert Webb and Grayson Perry that have sort of tackled it very well uh, in non-fiction. But fiction for me is not really, there's not anything that massively hits the ball for a mass market at the moment. I completely agree in stuff that I've seen as well, but I, I don't know about you, but I loved both Robert and Grayson's books. I thought they were fantastic, especially Grayson Perry's. He's an absolute hero of mine as well. I think he's just a perfect commentator on masculinity because of his having... Um, really really distinct masculine traits in the sense of being a very competitive artist and um, motorcyclist but also dressing up as a schoolgirl. so being incredibly masculine in so many ways but having to question his um, sartorial identity as a man and sexual identity as a man um, has given him that fantastic introspection as well as that fantastic action man quality that he has too yeah, and his use of art in, a, in, in that way. I mean, the the uh, Grayson Perry's Art Club has been a real highlight of the lockdown that we're currently experiencing, and um, the use of art as a as a as therapy really in in all matters. The way that he approaches that is just superb. And uh, yeah, he does obviously, um, you know, present a real complicated picture in terms of his gender, but one that we should all sort of hold up as a real good example. Absolutely. I think in his documentaries about transvesticism, he's always said that the transvestite is a complete human. They're wearing every aspect of their masculinity um, in the sense they're embracing femininity visually. Um, they're embracing masculinity visually in the sense they're a man dressed as a woman. I think that's a fantastic comment. And like you, I'm really enjoying Art Club. Um, for people, for anyone listening who um, doesn't know of Grayson Perry, um, he's a transvestite potter as he builds himself. Um who makes incredibly accessible work that might be more accessible than lots of literature that we're talking about and saying that's often falls short of 
representing masculinity because of its intellectuality or its uh, lack of mainstream accessibility. I think Grayson's programmes and Grayson's artwork um, are incredibly visual, accessible touch points if anyone's interested in um, seeing that masculinity conversation and positive masculinity represented in the culture. So the first question I want to ask you this afternoon, Ben, is uh, I want you to reimagine yourself at six years old and just talk to me about your relationship with masculinity um, at six. How did you behave? Were you aware of masculinity? Um, what were you like at six? Okay, I guess um, my 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 six-year-old self was probably a stereotypical life living in a suburban town in Norfolk. Um, you know, mum and dad, sister, cat, all lived together. Um, in terms of masculinity, I guess it was a very traditional life in that my dad went off to work and my mum stayed at home and looked after the family. I would consider myself probably working class at that stage. My dad was a welder and um you know gave me a good life can't really have many complaints did you have any concept at that age uh either from culture and things you were consuming as a six-year-old friends at school or from your father who you say was a welder and that breadwinner did you have any concept of what a man should be and um how did that relate to your behavior and your sense of self if you did I guess certainly it was just basically like traditional roles. You know, there was there was man work and there was women's work and, and those sort of uh, uh, tropes that are wheeled out from that era. You know, this is the 70s we're talking about, so it's not exactly the most culturally forward time of time of uh, British life. Um, but in t- I mean, really, it was just like I was not really thinking about uh, gender other than men were men, women were women. There was not really much of a concept of homosexuality in my life, I wouldn't say, at that age. And, um, yeah, that, that, that was kind of it, really. Thank you. I think in the introduction to this podcast, I talked about one of the main reasons I wanted to do it was to, um, just to mystify for listeners and myself, the uh, similarities and differences between um, homosexual and heterosexual men. I think, like you, um, I had very, very distinct sense of gender roles, which feels like it could be linked to our working class background as well, in that sense of um, men and women stereotypically behave in a more um, archetypal way from that class. But also, like you, I had no concept of what homosexuality was um, as a six-year-old. Uh, but my behaviour was, again, archetypal of a young kid who might um, later in life show um, homosexual tendencies. I remember being obsessed with the Spice Girls, uh, dressing up in Spice Girls outfits and all those things, but I had no sense that that was unconventional for a man. I just thought that was something a kid did. Not that I even thought that, I just remember doing it. I think there was no thought to behaviour at six. So if that was your relationship with your masculinity and gender roles at six, uh, at home, um, let's talk now about uh, socially and in school. Did Did you have a different sense of how boys should behave in school? Were you sporty? Or again, were you kind of um, unconscious in your analysis of whether your behaviour was masculine or not at six and in school? At six, probably still unconscious. I mean, uh, that was an era where boys played football and girls played netball and that sort of, uh, there was none of that mixed gender sport um, things happening particularly. I guess at six, maybe we might have all done PE together. I can't really recall, but um, it was, uh, you know, there was definitely the uh, playing on the playground, the kiss chase type um activities where 
the girls chased the boys around and the boys chased the girls around and those sort of gender roles came in quite quickly in my primary school i do remember that happening um so it it, it does get uh, formed at a pretty early age doesn't it the way that we all sort of play out these roles on the playground i do remember that happening from quite an early age yes yeah i've never thought about kiss chase since it happened it's one of those things that in um probably about the 20 odd years since i've played that i haven't thought about it i think really interesting metaphor uh for uh, masculinity and gender relationships playing kiss chase on a playground um so if that was your relationship with identity and masculinity at six let's talk now about um how you were at 16 how would your relationship with yourself um, and your masculinity changed at that age? And if it had changed, what do you think might have led to it? So 16 was a, actually quite a tough sort of age for me, I must admit. It was, um, my parents had, had divorced when I was about 12, and it hit me quite hard, actually. And, I, and a lot of the youthful zeal I'd had in my sort of, you know, up to the age of about 10 or 11, I had sort of retreated into myself quite a bit. Probably didn't show it on the outside but um inside i felt quite sort of withdrawn and um i did sort of um you know go into myself a bit after that experience and it did make me basically i felt like i had lost my safety net a bit in my life so i didn't have that sort of um thing to fall back on which had always been my parents i felt like i'd lost a bit of that Uh, in terms of gender and things like that i guess i was still going through um quite a traditional schooling i'd uh i had had a uh a brief relationship by that age uh with a girl um and um so in terms of the gender i guess i was still on the same sort of heterosexual path but um you do become more aware of um things like homosexuality by that age although um being at school in the 80s it was probably quite common that the gay word would be an, in, uh, an insult rather than something used in a positive way. So, uh, you know, there was lots of cultural things that were probably more bad than good at that age, I would say. Thank you so much, so much to unpack and talk about there. I think uh, that importance of the parental safety net uh, you talk about um, is something that's really, really uh, common to so many people. And I think that sense of I'm always reminded of the Larkins, this be the verse, they F you up your mum and dad. I think even positively or negatively, your parents have an impact on your teenage life. That sense of if you're over pampered, um, that's some form of abuse because the world isn't going to pamper you. And if you're if you feel an absence or a sense of unlove for whatever reason, then that can be detrimental because the world isn't necessarily going to lord you. So I think either way you get um, some kind of disruption from that. Um Something that's recurring in all these podcasts and something that I've been thinking about when listening to every speaker is that sense that turning into a teenager means a loss of zeal, which was your phrase, or a loss of play or a loss of self, uh, which I find really, really distressing. And I think might be linked to that sense of learning gender roles a little bit more, which means that we feel the need to perform a little bit more and be a little bit less. Um, And I think so much of my... Uh, love of theatre and love of reading um, allowed me to still play. It was being other people, either on stage or in a book. Um, do you think that's something that you empathised with? And did you, when did you find reading in your life? 
I definitely agree with the performance aspect. But I think the whole like being at school, being at high school, probably is just one massive big performance where you're struggling to fit in with everybody around you. Uh, you know, there's huge amounts of peer pressure. There's the um, phantom girls on the horizon that you think you should be you should be trying to associate with, but um, you know, finding the whole idea terrifying. Um, as you know, I, I did, my response to that was I, I did become a bit of a class clown, I guess, externally, even though internally, I, I felt like I'd sort of, you know, got that, um, lost that safety net. My response to that was sort of having a sense of humor. And I did find solace in things like sports and the arts in terms of books and films. And um, but also I was a keen sportsman. So I did have plenty of outlets for my sort of, you know, anxieties, I guess. And um, that's, that's, I guess, how I got through it. Thank you. I think I'm really, really interested in that idea of school as performance. I think the more I think about that when I was hearing your response, that idea of a uniform being like a costume, everyone has to look the same. Um, men and women have both got a script at school. We know what we're supposed to say and how we're supposed to behave. We're terrified of forgetting our lines and deviating from the characters we're supposed to play, which breeds this constant state of anxiety um, as a teenager. I think just hearing how you talk about it and that leading me to reflect in the moment about my own uh, school experience, that sense of so much of my teenage years was spent worrying about my performance as a boy and not being James, um, that that can only breed fight or flight and anxiety all the time, um, which is why either you were drawn to sport or books and I might have been drawn to acting, that sense of it was a time when I could escape performing me and just perform other people. I think that was a big allure there uh, like you as well I was that class clown I think especially as camp mannerisms were developing and thinking if I can use if I can harness these and make people laugh before they laugh at me um that became my uh, safety net if you like that phrase you keep using that that became my safety net um of humor uh so in terms of uh your relationship with masculinity at 16 uh I'm now 26, and as I said in the introduction to this, another reason I wanted to make the podcast is because it feels like a really uh, transitional age where I'm becoming... I, there's no way I can deny being an adult male anymore. You can in your early 20s when you've just left uni or you're just starting career, but I think as you near 30, you've got no cop-out. And so I wanted to speak to lots of older men about uh, their relationship with being 26 um, to see if I can learn anything about how I... Uh, can steer the course of my life in a positive direction towards that sense of positive masculinity. So talk to me about your sense of identity at 26 and how your relationship with your masculinity might have changed from that um, at 16. Well, I must say 26 was probably uh, like one of my halcyon sort of periods. It was a, it was a really good time. I've, um, I've been through, I went to university I've had a year away in Sweden with my um, girlfriend, who is, you know, is now my wife, and I've just I've been working in a bookshop for a year. So basically, my life was after like for me what felt like quite a massive period of uncertainty. I was basically a year into what would you know little did I know become twenty one years of career, which is what I'm looking at now. So. Um, 
in terms of masculinity, I think I was, you know, fully formed into, uh, you know, probably not a huge amount different from then and now, apart from I was probably, you know, a cocky little shit, basically. <laughs> the confidence of youth. And it was, uh, and, and that came from having it, a lot more stability in my life, you know, with my, my at the time, girlfriend, uh, who's now my wife, and having a job I loved and having come through uni, which was really like the period of time where I found the tr my true self. So I'm sure that happens with lots of people when you're finally, um, you know, if you, if you get to go to uni, that is a time where people probably use that time to find out who they want to be, who they're going to be, and hopefully uh, make it a positive experience. I can't say I was that good at um, doing my exams, but I was uh, good at the finding myself part of things. I'm glad to hear it was such a positive time for you. I think uh, we're getting mixed responses to how people felt at 26. I think to some extent, it feels like a positive time for me. Like you say, professionally, I feel like I'm quite secure. I say this having one of the most precarious jobs in the world. I'm a playwright, but I feel <laughs> quite secure um, in that sense of having found a passion more than secure in the work, I suppose. A um, few things I'd like to ask you, if I may, about that time. Uh, books always been a presence in your life and had you always wanted to be a bookseller? Um, and how did that sit with that uh, masculine culture of men being doers, not thinkers and readers, and your dad being a welder? Did that yield any uh, conflict? That's a very good question, actually. I um, I think um, I've never been... My, my upbringing was always very arty, I guess, in that respect, in that my even though my dad was a welder, he was a big reader, and um, very in, into art. He, he used to be, do pottery and he's always been, you know, crafty with his hands. And my mum, during that tumultuous period of the divorce, started doing a, a degree at Norwich Art School. Um, so the arts was something that has always been around. So um, I've never felt that pressure to be in a career that, um, you know, it, would, would be considered macho. Um, so I guess that is something that set me apart from uh, other people. I mean, you know, the, the kids at school didn't really care what you did. It was all about behaviour, I think, at school when you're at that age. Um, so I, no, I never really felt that pressure. And I um, didn't always necessarily want to be a bookseller, but um, I was keen to do something I enjoyed rather than doing something for the money. Thank you so much. I'm really interested in that notion that your dad was a welder and, as you say, this archetypal man's man and yet incredibly crafty and creative. Uh, my dad's exactly the same. So he was a Mancunian man, uh, very, very working class, left school when he was 12 um, and worked to painter and decorator. And I grew up with that in my life. But because he was interested in painting and decorating, he taught me how to paint watercolour and taught me how to do magic and taught me how to make stuff and how to read and write, even though he struggled himself. So I think there's that beautiful, I just find that relationship between a man being very, very uh, physical and undemonstrative and yet being crafty and um, archetypally those kind of craft work feels more feminine, that sense that those men can be uh, artistically demonstrative. And it goes back to Grayson that we were talking about as well. I think he talks about this beautifully in his uh, memoir portrait of an artist as a young girl, just that sense of his dad being either distant eventually, but when he was there, kind of archetypally masculine, but still that enabled his creativity because his dad taught him craft. Um, 
and that's obviously changed his life and shaped his life as it sounds like it shaped ours in terms of your book selling and my writing. Uh, something I'd like to talk a little bit more about, if I may, as well, as you said that your time at uni changed your life and was incredibly um, developmental positively for you. Can I ask you to talk a little bit more about that? What happened? Well, I think what happened was it's just the fact where you're not at home anymore with your parents. That was the first time I was away from home and you kind of, you know, able to be your own person. You don't have to be at home at a certain time. You don't have to live within the confines of whatever your parents think you should be doing. And I just think you can just walk your own walk, basically. And whilst, you know, when when I started, I was incredibly nervous about the whole thing. It was just like, it was the making of me. It was just like I could, you know, um, talk to the other students on a on a level that I hadn't didn't feel like my sort of uh, local friends necessarily had been until you know it was a couple of friends but there wasn't this huge group of people that were the same as me and I think when you end up at university I think you probably do have that group of people that are all the same as you they're people that you've chosen to be with rather than that are just the people that live near you and um I think that was a, you know, it's an extremely, um, you know, good time. And, uh, you know, it was just in Luton. So it wasn't necessarily, you know, it's not exactly Cambridge or Oxford, but it was just like a really good fun time where I could, you know, learn a lot about myself and who I wanted to be for the future. Thank you so much. I think there's so much to unpack in that. I really, really empathise with that sense of finding yourself away from uh, parental figures. I think that's uh, a really, really important uh, thing to mention. And that sense of uh, finding people like you at university or um, in extracurricular groups if people are listening and don't want to go to university, I think. Because, as we said, school is such a performance where people are trying to, men are playing men and uh, girls are playing girls. Um, I think there is such strength in taking part in extracurricular groups for your passions or going to study courses and finding like-minded people that are more interested in being something they're passionate about or doing something they're passionate about than they are in performing masculinity or performing uh, the class clown or whatever it is. So I think for listeners, that's a really important thing to take away. Um, something that popped out, I've never thought about when you were talking about that as well, is that sense of whether people at school who feel really dissimilar to us as adults might actually be really, really similar because we're all so scared of being an individual at school to some extent. We want to fit in. Um, we can't really uh, be ourselves as passionately as we can at uni. And I just look back and think maybe there were so many near friendships if I wasn't performing something and my peers weren't performing something that could have really blossomed and stayed from primary and secondary school uh do you think that's do you think there's validity in that or have you had experience of that where you've met with old school friends and they have turned out to be incredibly similar now you're not kids playing adults at school um I haven't really met any people that I kind of didn't get on with at school if you know what I mean so I can't say I've had that experience it it was strange how I've had reunions amongst friends that I've had at school and the the way that we slotted back into you know being the people we were when we were at school that was almost like a regression but like a you know a comfortable regression I would say (laughs) so we slipped back into our performance just because we were in the same group that was my experience of that 
Oh, okay, that's interesting. That sense that you still perform. I think I've kept in touch with so few school friends, but uh, the ones that I have, I was close with at school. Um, so I'd be really, really interested to see that. I think that'd be an interesting uh, notion. I think there's a learning here about just sort of like we're, we're, if there are men with problems, that maybe it's all just about breaking down that uh, desire to ha- having to perform, isn't there? And we, we need to get through to the true person rather than this uh, possibly toxic performance that's, that's happening or being learned from people that are around them. Absolutely. This has emerged in one of the previous podcasts as well, that sense of uh, just if you think of environments like the classroom or the gym or the pub, these archetypal male environments, they do feel like stage sets in which there's certain things you're allowed to do and certain actions you have to perform and certain costumes you have to wear in all of those environments. Um, and that's it. I, I am yet to meet or talk to on this podcast or meet through work or meet socially a man that doesn't feel anxious in any of those environments because he feels like he's got to wear a certain thing, say a certain thing or perform a certain way. I think if we're brave enough to start uh, being in those environments as opposed to performing in those environments, then we might be able to change them within our small communities. I think that's something that I've taken away from having these conversations, these podcasts and through talking to friends socially, just the older you get, the less you care what people think about you to some extent. Um, And so the more you are... Um, open to just being as opposed to trying to be what people think you should be so I think um, I'm very reluctant to give any advice to any listener. I remember my, my dad you know I've, I've talked about how my dad was like quite artistic and stuff at home but when I used to work with him on building sites sometimes as a kid just you know casting lead around and stuff and he used to be like a completely different person on the building site than he was when he was at home he almost like started talking more working class like emphasized his accent and I, I remember just thinking like who is this person that's in front of me he's just completely changed and I guess perhaps we all do oh gosh I think we all do I think that's a perfectly natural thing to some extent but it's with everything it's checking in is this am I doing this because I want to do this and feel safe doing this or am I doing this because I think I need to to be safe and if it's the latter, then maybe the behaviour needs to be readdressed. I think with everything, it's just asking, is this hurting me? Is this helpful? Is this hurting other people? Um, but as I said, I'm reluctant to give advice at 26. I feels very, very arrogant. But I think in my experience of um, learning how to be in heteronormative environments that used to scare me, i.e. pubs or gyms, um, I think I get scared when I'm worried of a mask slipping. Um, and I think that I can't be scared if I am myself, because if someone then has a problem, um, what people think of me is none of my business to some extent. Um, but in order for me to be safe, I find if I just am myself and I act with integrity and I act truthfully, then normally I feel comfortable. So if listeners are finding environments challenging, try and remove yourself from environments. Interrogate why those environments might be challenging. Um, and that might have something to do with you thinking you have to perform something you aren't in those spaces. Uh, so in terms of that being your relationship with masculinity at 26. Um, how do you think your relationship with masculinity has changed from then to now? So um, I'm a parent now, which I guess is a very, another step that's uh, gone through. So um, not only thinking about uh, myself, but that I have a, a one daughter who's 16 and one son who's 14. So really, I just try and think about uh, the world as a parent now, I guess. 
and uh, just try you a you want to set a good example but you don't want to uh, you know make it too obvious <laughs> I suppose no sort of lectures but you need to just uh, you know be there for people and try and explain the world to kids don't you but, uh, believe me they're beyond explaining to at this stage <laughs> and uh, yeah in terms of myself it's just yeah it's just um, you know being what a parent should look like if you don't mind me asking, where do you think you uh, learnt what a dad should look like? And um, did you feel like you were performing elements of fatherhood at all? Uh, that's a good question. Probably, yes. Obviously, when your your kids are young, you don't really know what you're doing. So you, um, you, you're just kind of winging it. And then, uh, well, I'm probably at the stage now where, you know, I... Um, know a bit more, uh, you know, like I say, I'm 47 now, but you know, you still, you know, lose your rag sometimes, and then you have to sort of backtrack yourself and think, no, I shouldn't be doing this. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it still has its challenges, and I don't necessarily think that I, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm not saying I'm the, I'm the best dad in the world, I'm just, you know, uh, winging it every day, really, but it's, uh, in terms of masculinity, it's um, you know, it's uh, just trying to keep the doors open for my kids to be who they want to be. Beautiful, thank you very much. I think there's so much strength to be gained in owning that phrase. I'm winging it. I think so many problems of masculinity come from I'm owning it, and I know what I'm doing, and I know who I am. I think if we embrace, if we embrace that sense of I'm winging it, and we're open about that. Look, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm trying. I think instantly that's far less terrifying and less performative because it just feels more present and natural. Um, if you don't mind me asking, because this isn't about you, I suppose, um, are you noticing differences in how your 14-year-old son might be encountering masculinity to how you were when you were younger? Well, he has, um, he has uh, said that he might be gay. So, but he doesn't really know, I don't think. He hasn't decided that forever. He did have a um, a brief uh, relationship with a um, with a trans boy at school, so that that was a bit of a learning curve for me. I'm not going to lie to you. I didn't, you don't really know what to say in those circumstances, other than to say, Sam, just you know, just go with it, and we'll be here if you need to talk about it. Wow, thank you so much for telling me that. I'm not going to push. Um, any more about his experience because that feels inappropriate but if you don't mind me asking can I ask about your journey there as you said kind of growing up not knowing much about homosexuality as a child and then as a teenager knowing about it but growing up during AIDS and Clause 28 as you said every uh, any exposure you had to homosexuality at school was kind of shrouded in a negativity um, did you feel that that affected how you approached that um, moment in your life with your son or did you feel like you've grown through everything you've learned at uni and your time to becoming who you are now I think me and my wife were both just sort of you know we, we were um, we were aware that it could go wrong from a parental point of view so we just um, tried to let him go through it for himself um, we didn't want to tell him what to do um, we just wanted to say Sam be you know, you, this is the early days for you. You can be what you want to be, and we're gonna um, let let you explore that for yourself. 
and you're so young you know it's not it's not sexual uh, for him it's just um you know it was a uh, it was a, a friendship i guess a bit more than a friendship but i don't really you know in, in it ended and he was he was sad and um it was only you know several months but it was as as parents you would just sort of just make sure, wanting him to be okay i guess and that was the the overriding emotion and practical sort of application of our parenting at that point thank you for sharing that with me i'm so moved that you uh experienced that as you did i think that's handled beautifully uh, if that's not a really patronizing thing to say i really hope it isn't it's meant with utmost respect and affection uh in terms of how you uh, behaved that's beautiful um so as a final question then uh again so i said a big reason i'm making this um is to kind of learn a little more about how to be an adult man in a really positive way for myself and for other people um what would you say it would be the advice you would give to your younger male self either at 16 or 26 or whenever uh is there anything you know now that you wish you could tell him well i think there's a there's a lot about that performance uh, aspect that he, you i wish i hadn't i wish i had been more myself i guess uh, when I was going through school because um, you know you just try and fit in and you don't want to um, have to perform the whole time and you know it doesn't matter it really doesn't matter so if you if you ever have worries about like, like you were saying about the changing room sort of mentality uh, it's other people's problems and it's not your problem and I think if you, you know society would be a lot better if we could eliminate that sort of internal dialogue that we all have and just let people be themselves, you know, in safety, like you say. And as you know, um, we often put these problems upon ourselves, and we say that it's our problem, but it's not. It's the other people's pro- that have the problem. And I just think if we all realised that when we were sixteen, then you know, those formative years would be um, a lot easier. Beautiful. Thank you so much. I empathise with that so much, and I think if I could say similar things to my younger self but it'd be exactly the same thing that what people think of you is none of your business and no one really gives a damn about who you sleep with or how you look because they're too busy caring about how people um, judge them for who they sleep with and how they look I think so don't fret about it sleep with who you want and wear what you want because no one really cares because they're too anxious worrying about what people think of them I think the more I talk to people on these podcasts and the more I kind of go through life and unlearn so much stuff it is that sense of learning to be to be present to be yourself really does help so many solve so many problems we encounter uh, with masculinity ben it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you thank you for your time this afternoon thank you james Thank you for listening. This has been Mantor, the Masculinity Conversations, brought to you by me, James McDermott, and Story Machine Productions, with music by Jordan Mallory Skinner and produced by Sam Ruddock. We're keen to talk to anyone who wants to share their experience of masculinity. If you would like to be featured in a forthcoming episode, drop us a line at storymachineproductions at gmail.com.